Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the podcast series, Musings on Theosophy. In our first episode, we covered Writings About Karma, written by William Q. Judge and a few others, which were originally published in Path magazine. Judge led the theosophical movement in America during and after its founder, Helena Blavatsky's time. In this, our second episode, as promised, we'll delve into what is inextricably linked to karma, reincarnation. One could say the very purpose of reincarnation is to provide the opportunity to refine one's evolution through the law of karma over a period of several lifetimes. Having that opportunity can be viewed as a glass half empty or a glass half full, depending on one's outlook. On one hand, any harm or misdeed will be dearly paid for with, for instance, difficult circumstances or occurrences in a future life, and a life full of goodness is rewarded at some point, though we cannot know or control when. On the other hand, one could ignore the inevitable repercussions— until some far-off tomorrow. That's an oversimplification, for sure, but if you have knowledge of Eastern religion, it's likely you're accustomed to viewing your life from this perspective of the cause-and-effect cycle. If you're a Christian, the concept may be wholly unfamiliar, or if familiar with it, you may be surprised to hear that reincarnation was part of the early teachings of the Church who perhaps took the view that people were not acting ethically because they'd happily put off dealing with their transgressions in another life. To find evidence of reincarnation as a tenet of Christianity, one must search early Christian Bibles and texts. In this podcast, however, we'll focus upon the remarkable similarities from teachings around the globe and over thousands of years. As in Episode 1, There are a few terms contained in the articles I will be narrating for you in a moment that are worth clarifying. That's either because they are unique to theosophy, or what I find more commonly, the use of the term has very much changed between the late 1800s, when the articles were first written, and how those same words are used in our everyday 21st century vernacular. As you listen, try to remember that in the whole of theosophy, there is not ever a prejudicial thought. To the contrary, the brotherhood between people is quite central to its teachings. The relationship between the cosmos, man, nature, and divinity is seen only as one. In the article, Reincarnation in Judaism and the Bible, The word cult is used to describe early Christianity, which at first can seem quite the shocking demotion from our concept of the enormous might and influence of the Christian church. Yet if we look at Merriam-Webster's definition of cult and think of the historical and political climate of Christianity in Christ's time and shortly thereafter, you may find the definition is fitting. The dictionary says cult, one, a system of religious veneration and devotion directed to a particular figure or object. And more fittingly, too, a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. Remember, within the Roman Empire, one could be arrested for being a Christian, 
And just a hundred years later, after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, one could be arrested for not being a Christian. That's a historical fact. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire when Emperor Theodosius I issued the Edict of Theosalonica in the year 380 A.D. The next term is less controversial. Well, perhaps. Metempsychosis, meaning the transmigration of the soul after death into a similar body. If we extrapolate the word reincarnation to look at its etymology, R.E. means again. Karn relates to flesh, usually of a mammal, and Asian simply makes reincarnation a noun. So the moment reincarnating occurs is metempsychosis. Almost exclusively, the teaching on reincarnation has historically been that after death, a soul cannot be placed into a body within the animal kingdom, because once the very long development that has enabled one to incarnate into a human body is complete, that progression is not reversible. A lively debate upon that subject is in the article, The Persian Student's Doctrine. Another word that sounds very complicated isn't. Anathematize simply means to condemn. It's used in reference to the lack of evidence that Jesus Christ, during his lifetime, ever condemned or anathematized the teaching of reincarnation. Because it was accepted to be true in early Christianity and in the Judaism of Christ's time, there was no reason to refute it. The last term I'd like to mention is ego, which is mentioned a few times in the article Transmigration of Souls. Although spelled the same as the term ego popularized by Freud in the 20th century, theosophy's ego predates it by several years. The meanings also differ. Freud's use of ego has to do with personal identity. Theosophy's ego is a much broader term. It does include the consciousness of man and one's awareness of oneself on a mortal or personal level, but also includes the principles von Atma to include higher, divine, and impersonal consciousness. In those cases, ego is capitalized. So let's hop to it. Here are nine short articles from the path of reincarnation. Enjoy! Reincarnation Contents Upanishads on Rebirth Reincarnation in Judaism and the Bible. Reincarnation in the Bible. Christian Fathers on Reincarnation. Friends or Enemies in the Future. Respecting Reincarnation. Argument for Reincarnation. Why Races Die Out. Reincarnation of Animals. Transmigration of Souls. The Persian Student's Doctrine. William Q. Judge, Series No. 1, Theosophy Company, Mysore, Private LTD, Bangalore, 560-004. Forward, William Q. Judge was one of the original founders of the Theosophical Movement and also of the Theosophical Society, since it was he who at his first organizing meeting took the chair and proposed Colonel Alcott as permanent chairman. 
He was later addressed by H.P.B. Blavatsky as brother and co-founder of the Theosophical Society in her first letter to the American Theosophists in 1888. He served as vice president of the Society and general secretary of the American section, holding these offices until 1895, when the American section became autonomous as the Theosophical Society in America, with Judge as president for life. While Mr. Judge was a talented and tireless organizer, his official positions meant little by comparison with his achievements as a worker for and a writer on theosophy. He was from the time of their first meeting the friend, pupil, colleague, and loyal supporter of HPB, who said that he had been, quote, part of herself for several eons. Speaking of the society, she called Judge the heart and soul of that body in America and declared that if he should resign, HPB would be virtually dead for Americans. Fully as important as testaments to Judge's occult role and his ability and integrity is the tangible evidence of his services to the movement in what he wrote for The Path, which he founded in 1886, and for other theosophical journals. He showed veritable genius in embodying the profound thought of Madame Blavatsky's books in simple, understandable words, with deep appeal to the heart as well as the mind. Like all true teachers, he was self-effacing, often concealing his identity as a contributor under pseudonyms, of which he used at least a dozen. He also wrote as editor unsigned articles although it is usually possible to identify his work by the quality and depth of meaning. It seems likely, however, that some of the articles commonly attributed to him were papers by others which he had reworked for publication, so that authorship becomes technically questionable. But the essential quality of the content is the criterion which has been adopted here. As Mr. Judge says in The Persian Student's Doctrine, the reputed authorship of works of timeless teaching is but a name. As with the series of HPB's contributions to periodicals, Mr. Judge's articles have been grouped under general headings. They are produced exactly as they appeared in the place of original publication, save for some minor changes in punctuation, the correction of obvious printer's errors, and a few significant modifications in typographic style. It would be seen by the reader that Mr. Judge understands and writes for the ordinary inquirer, the person who has heard something of theosophy and wants to know more about it. His prose inspires the reader with confidence that he can understand this philosophy, for here is no obscure or learned exposition, but a quiet eloquence which engages the reason with common sense. Upanishads on Rebirth Hence one whose fire is burned out is reborn through the tendencies in mind. According to his thoughts, he enters life. But linked by the fire with the self, this life leads to a world of recompense. Prashna Upanishad Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Genesis The above quotation from Prashna Upanishad gives the old doctrine the same as in Buddhism, that rebirth is due to mind and to the tendencies therein, quote, whose fire has burned out, 
means the fire of life expiring. Quote, according to his thoughts, does not refer to what one wishes to have for rebirth, but to the seeds of thought left in the mind from the thinking of each hour of life. These in mass make a tendency or many tendencies, which on coming out either keep the soul to that family in all modes of thought and act, or tend to segregate the soul from the circle into which it was born. Quote, this life leads to a world of recompense, because by the fire of life it is linked to the self, which being thus bound goes after death to the state where recompense is its portion. The alteration to and fro from one state to another, for the purposes of compensation, is not the attainment of knowledge, but the subjugation of results eternally, unless the soul strives to find truth and becomes free, and ceases to set up causes for future births. A Jewish tradition says that Adam had to reincarnate as David, and later as the Messiah. Hence, to dust thou shalt return. Path, 1894 Reincarnation in Judaism and the Bible The lost chord of Christianity is the doctrine of reincarnation. It was beyond doubt taught in the early days of the cult, for it was well known to the Jews who produced the men who founded Christianity. The greatest of all fathers of the church, Oregon, no doubt believed in the doctrine. He taught pre-existence and the wandering of the soul. This could hardly have been believed without also giving currency to reincarnation, as the soul could scarcely wander in any place save the earth. She was in exile from paradise, and for sins committed had to revolve and wander. Wander where would be the next question. Certainly away from paradise, and the short span of human life would not meet the requirements of the case. But a series of reincarnations will meet all of the problems of life, as well as all the necessities of the doctrines of exile, of wanderings for purification, of being known to God and being judged by Him before birth, and of other dogmas given out among the Jews, and of course well known to Jesus, and whoever of the seventy-odd disciples were not in the deepest ignorance. Some of the disciples were presumably ignorant men, such as the fishermen, who were dependent on their elders for instruction, but not all were that sort, as the wonderful works of the period were sufficiently exciting to come to the ears of even Herod. Paul cannot be accused of ignorance, but was with Peter and James one of the several who not only knew the new ideas, but were well-versed in the old ones. And those old ones are to be found in the Old Testament and in the commentaries, in the Zohar, in the Talmud, in the other works and sayings of the Jews, all which built up a body of dogmas accepted by the people and the rabbis. Hence sayings of Jesus and Paul and of others have to be viewed with the well-known and never-disputed doctrines of the day held down to the present time, born well in the mind so as to make passages clear and show what was tacitly accepted. Jesus himself said that he had intended to uphold and buttress the law, and that law was not only the matter found in the book the Christian theologians saw fit to accept, but also in other authorities of which all except the grossly unlearned were cognizant. 
So when we find Herod listening to the assertions that John or Jesus was this or that, or the other prophet or great men of olden time, we know that he was with the people, speculating on the doctrine of reincarnation or coming back, and as to who a present famous person may have been in a former life. Given as it is in the Gospels as a mere incident, it is very plain that the matter was court gossip in which long philosophical arguments were not indulged in, but the doctrine was accepted and then personal facts gone into for amusement as well as for warnings to the king. To an Eastern potentate, such a warning would be of moment, and he, unlike a Western man, would think that a returning great personage would of necessity have not only knowledge but also power, and that if the person had their minds attracted to a new aspirant for the leadership, they would be inflamed beyond control with the idea that an old prophet or former king had come back to dwell in another body with them. The Christians have no right, then, to excise the doctrine of reincarnation from their system if it was known to Jesus, if it was brought to his attention and not condemned but was tacitly accepted, and further, finally, in any single case, it was declared by Jesus as true in respect to any person. And that all this was the case can, I think, be clearly shown. First for the Jews from whom Jesus was born, and to whom he said unequivocally he came as a missionary or a reformer. The Zohar is a work of great weight and authority among the Jews. In 2.199b, it says, All souls are subject to revolutions. This is a metapsychosis, or lean begilgula, but it declares that, quote, men do not know the way they have been judged in all time. That is, in their revolutions, they lose a complete memory of the acts that have led to judgment. This is precisely the theosophical doctrine. The Kether Malkuth says, If she the soul be pure, then she shall obtain favor, but if she hath been defiled, then she shall wander for a time, in pain and despair, until the days of her purification. If the soul be pure and she comes at once from God at birth, how could she be defiled? And where is she to wander if not on this or some other world until the days of her purification? The rabbis always explained it as meaning she wandered down from paradise through many revolutions or births until purity was regained. Under the name of Din Gilgal Neshemes, the doctrine of reincarnation is constantly spoken of in the Talmud. The term means, quote, the judgment of the revolutions of the souls. And Rabbi Manasseh, son of Israel, one of the most revered, says in his book, Nishlet Chaim, the belief or doctrine of the transmigration of souls is a firm and infallible dogma, accepted by the whole assemblage of our church with one accord, so that there is none to be found who would dare to deny it. Indeed, there is a great number of sages in Israel who hold firm to this doctrine, so that they made it a dogma, a fundamental point of our religion, where we are therefore in duty bound to obey and accept this dogma with acclamation. As the truth of it has been incontestably demonstrated by the Zohar and all books of the Kabbalists, unquote. These demonstrations hold, as do the traditions of the old Jews, that the soul of Adam reincarnated as David, and that on account of the sin of David against Uriah, 
it will have to come again in the expected Messiah. And out of the three letters, ADM being the name of the first man, the Talmudists always made the names Adam, David, and Messiah. Hence, this is in the Old Testament, quote, And they will serve Jehovah their God, and David their king, who I shall reawaken for them, unquote. That is, David reincarnates again for the people, taking the judgment of God on. Adam, quote, For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return, unquote. The Hebrew interpreters said that since Adam had sinned, it was necessary for him to reincarnate on earth in order to make good the evil committed in his first existence. So he comes as David and later is to come as Messiah. The same doctrine is always applied by the Jews to Moses, Seth, and Abel, the latter spelt Habel. Habel, killed by Cain, and then to supply the loss, the Lord gave Seth to Adam. He died, and later on Moses is his reincarnation as the guide of the people, and Seth was said by Adam to be the reincarnation of Habel. Cain died and reincarnated as Jethro Korah, who died, the soul waiting till the time when Habel came back as Moses, and then incarnated as the Egyptian who was killed by Moses. So in this case, Habel comes back as Moses, meets Cain in the person of the Egyptian, and kills the latter. Similarly, it is held that Beliam, Laban, and Nabal were incarnations of the soul or individuality. And of Job, it was said that he was the same person known as Tara, the father of Abraham, by which they explained the verse Job 9, 21, quote, Though I were perfect, yet I would not know my own soul, to mean that he would not recognize himself as Tara. All this is to be had in mind in reading Jeremiah, quote, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou earnest out of the womb, I sanctified thee. Or, in Romans chapter 9, verse 11 and 13, after telling that Jacob and Esau were not yet born, quote, Jacob I have loved, and Esau have I hated. Or the ideas of the people that, quote, Elias was yet to first come. Or that some of the prophets were there in Jesus or John. Or when Jesus asked his disciples, whom do men think I am? There cannot be the slightest doubt, then, that among the Jews for ages, and down to the time of Jesus, the ideas above outlined prevailed universally. Let us now come to the New Testament. St. Matthew relates in the 11th chapter the talk of Jesus on the subject of John, who is declared by him to be the greatest of all ending in the 14th verse thus, quote, And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Here he took the doctrine for granted, and the if referred not to any possible doubts on that, but simply whether they would accept his designation of John as Elias. In the 17th chapter, he once more takes up the subject thus, verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, 
Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is already come, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. The statement is repeated in Mark chapter 9, verse 13, omitting the name of John. It is nowhere denied. It is not among any of the cases in which the different Gospels contradict each other. It is in no way doubtful. It is not only a reference to the doctrine of reincarnation, but it is also a clear enunciation of it. It goes much further than the case of the man who was born blind when Jesus heard the doctrine referred to, but did not deny it or condemn it in any way, merely saying that the cause in that case was not for sin formally committed, but for some extraordinary purpose, such as the case of the supposed dead man, when he said that the man was not dead, but was to be used to show his power over disease. In the latter one he perceived there was one so far gone to death that no ordinary person could cure him. And in the blind man's case, the incident was like it. If he thought the doctrine pernicious, as it must be if untrue, he would have condemned it at the first coming up. But not only did he not fail to do so, he distinctly himself brought it up in the case of John. And again, when asking what were the popular notions as to himself under the prevailing doctrines as above shown. Matthew 16, verse 13 will do as an example as the different writers do not disagree thus. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Whom do men say I am? And they said, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This was a deliberate bringing up of the old doctrine, to which the disciples replied, as all Jews would, without any dispute of the matter of reincarnation. And the reply of Jesus was not a confutation of the notion, but a distinguishing of himself from the common lot of sages and prophets by showing himself to be an incarnation of God and not a reincarnation of a saint or sage. He did not bring it up to dispute and condemn as he would and did in other matters, but to the very contrary, he evidently referred to it so as to use it for showing himself as an incarnate God. And following his example, the disciples never disputed that. They were all aware of it. St. Paul must have held it when speaking of Asu and Jacob. St. John could have meant nothing but that in Revelations chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcometh I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Evidently he had gone out before, or the words no more could have no place or meaning. It was the old idea of the exile of the soul, and the need for it to be purified by long wandering before it could be admitted as a pillar in the temple of God. Until the ignorant, ambitious monks after the death of Oregon had gotten hold of Christianity, the doctrine must have ennobled a new movement. Later, the Council of Constantinople condemned all notions directly in the face of the very words of Jesus, so that at last it ceased to vibrate as one of the chords, until finally the prophecy of Jesus 
that he came to bring a sword and division, and not peace, was fulfilled by the warring nations of Christian lands, who profess him in words, but by their acts constantly deny him, whom they call the meek and lowly. William Q. Judge. Path, February 1894. Reincarnation in the Bible An exhaustive paper on this subject is not contemplated in this article, but a sketch will show that the Christian Bible has in it the doctrine of reincarnation. Of course, those who adhere only to what the Church now teaches on the subject of man, his nature and destiny, will not quickly accept any construction outside of the theological one. But there are many who, while not in the church, still cling to the old book from which they were taught. In the first place, it must be remembered that the writers of biblical books were Jews with few exceptions, and that the founder of Christianity, Jesus, was himself a Jew. An examination of his own sayings show that he thought his mission was to the Jews only and not to the Gentiles. He said, quote, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This clearly referred to the Jews, as clearly excluded the Gentiles. And on one occasion, he refused for some time to do anything for a Gentile woman until her importunity at last compelled him to act. And then, too, he referred to his mission to the Jews. So in looking into these things, we must also look to what were the beliefs of the day. The Jews then most undoubtedly believed in reincarnation. It was a commonly accepted doctrine, as it is now in Hindustan, and Jesus must have been acquainted with it. This we must believe on two grounds. First, that he is claimed by the Christian to be the Son of God, and full of all knowledge. And second, that he had received an education which permitted him to dispute with the doctors of divinity. The theory of reincarnation was very old at the time, and the Old Testament book shows this to be so. Proverbs gives the doctrine where Solomon says he was with the Creator from the beginning, and that then his, Solomon's, delights were with the sons of men in the habitable parts of the earth. This disposes of the explanation that he meant he existed in the foreknowledge of the Creator by the use of the sentence detailing his life on earth with men. Then again, Elias and many other famous men were actually to return, and all the people were from time to time expecting them. Adam was held to have reincarnated to carry on the work he began so badly, and Seth, Moses, and others were reincarnated as different great persons of subsequent epochs. The land is an Oriental one, and the Orientals always held to the doctrine of rebirth of mortals. It was not always referred to in respect to the common man who died and was reborn, but came up predominantly when the names of great prophets, seers, and legislators were mentioned. If readers will consult any well-educated Jew who is not, quote, reformed, they will gain much information on this national doctrine. Coming now to the time of Jesus, all the foregoing has a bearing on what he said. And of course, if what he said does not agree with the view of the church, then the church view must be given up 
or we will be guilty of doubting the wisdom of Jesus and his ability to conduct a great movement. This, indeed, is the real position of the Church, for it has proclamated dogmas and condemned doctrines wholly without any authority, and some that Jesus held himself, it has put its anathema upon. Where there was brought into the presence of Jesus a man who was born blind, the disciples naturally wondered why he had thus been punished by the Almighty, and asked Jesus whether the man was thus born blind for some sin he had committed or one done by his parents. The question was put by them with the doctrine of reincarnation fully accepted, for it is obvious that the man must have lived before, in their estimation, in order to have done sin for which he was then punished. Now, if the doctrine was wrong or pernicious, as the Church has declared it to be by anathematizing it, Jesus must have known it to be wrong, and then was the time for him to deny the whole theory and explode it, as well as definitely putting his seal of condemnation upon it for all time. Yet he did not do so. He waved it then, and said the blindness was for other reasons in that case. It was not a denial of it. But again, when John the Baptist, who had, so to say, ordained Jesus to his ministry, was killed by the ruler of the country, the news was brought to Jesus, and he then distinctly affirmed the doctrine of reincarnation. Hence his waving of the matter in the case of the blind man is shown to have been no refusal to credit the theory. Jesus affirmed the doctrine and also affirmed the old ideas in relation to the return to earth of the prophets by saying the ruler had killed John, not knowing that be John, was Elias, quote, who was for to come. On another occasion, the same subject arose between Jesus and the disciples when they were talking about the coming of a messenger before Jesus himself. The disciples did not understand and said that Elias was to come first as the messenger, and Jesus distinctly replied that Elias had come already in the person called John the Baptist. This time, if any, was the time for Jesus to condemn the doctrine, but on the contrary, he boldly asserts it and teaches it, or rather shows its application to certain individuals, as was most interesting and instructive for the disciples who had not enough insight to be able to tell who any man was in his real immortal nature. But Jesus, being a seer, could look into the past and tell them just what historical character any one had been. And also he gave them details about John, and we must suppose more particulars were gone into man than have come down to us in writings, naturally incomplete, and confessed to be a partial narrative of the doings and sayings of Jesus. It must now be evident that there is a diametrical disagreement between the Church and Jesus. The Church has cursed the doctrine he taught. Which is right? The true believer in Jesus must reply that Jesus is. The Church will say it is right by acting on that line. For if the doctrine be taught, then all men are put on equal basis, and hence the power of human rulers of heaven and earth is at once weakened. Such an important doctrine is this one, that Jesus could not afford to pass over. And if it is wrong, then it was his duty to condemn it. Indeed, we must suppose that he would have done so were it not entirely right. And as he went further, 
even to the extent of affirming it, then it stands with his seal of approval for all time. John the Revealer believed it, of course, and so in his book we find the verse saying that the voice of the Almighty declared that man who overcame should go out no more from heaven. This is mere rhetoric if reincarnation be denied. It is quite plain as a doctrine if we construe it to mean that the man who by constant struggle in many lives at last overcomes the delusions of matter will have no need to go out into life anymore. But from that time will be a pillar, what the theosophists know as Dian Kohan, forevermore. And this is exactly the olded oriental doctrine on the point. St. Paul also gives the theory of reincarnation in his epistles where he refers to the cases of Jacob and Esau, saying the Lord loved one and hated the other before they were born. It is obvious that the Lord cannot love or hate a non-existing thing, and that it means that Jacob and Esau had been in their former lives respectively good and bad, and therefore the Lord, or karma, loved the one and hated the other before their birth as the men known as Jacob and Esau. And Paul was here speaking of the same event that the older prophet Malachi spoke of in strict adherence to the prevalent idea. Following Paul and the disciples came the early fathers of the church, and many of them taught the same. Oregon was the greatest of them. He gave the doctrine specifically. And it was because of the influence of his ideas that the Council of Constantinople, 500 years after Jesus, saw fit to condemn the whole thing as pernicious. This condemnation worked because the fathers were ignorant men, most of them Gentiles, who did not care for old doctrines, and indeed hated them. So it fell out of the public teaching and was lost to the Western world. But it must revive for it is one of the Founder's own beliefs, and as it gives a permanent and forceful basis for ethics, it is really the most important of all the theosophical doctrines. William Brahan, Path, December, 1892 Christian Fathers on Reincarnation Our brother George R. S. Mead, the General Secretary of the European Section T.S., is held that whether or not Oregon, the greatest of the fathers, believed in reincarnation. The Christian Church never formally anathematized the doctrine. If this position is sound, there would be an opportunity for the Roman Church to declare the doctrine by holding that the anathema pronounced was against a species of incarnation or of metapsychosis, not very clearly defined except as a pre-existence of the soul as opposed to a special creation for each new body. This declaration can only be made by placing the future lives of the soul on some other planet after leaving this one. That would be reincarnation, but not as we understand it. The issue of Lucifer for February has valuable contributions under notes and queries on this subject, and from that I extract something. Bozobra says, it is a very ancient and general belief that souls are pure and heavenly substances, which exist before their bodies and come down to heaven to clothe and animate them. I only quote it to show that this nation, Jews, 
believed for a long time back in the pre-existence of souls. All the most learned Greek fathers held this opinion, and a considerable portion of the Latin fathers followed them herein. It has been held by several Christian philosophers. It was received into the church until the 4th century without being obnoxious to the charge of heresy. Bozober, however, calls the belief an error. It would be interesting to know whether it is not the fact that at about the 4th century, the monks and bishops were ignorant men who would be more likely to take up a narrow dogma necessary for preservation of their power than to hold the broader and grander one of pre-existence. Oregon died about 254 A.D. He was so great and learned that even in his lifetime other men forged his name to their own writings. But while he was still living, uneducated monks were flocking into the ranks of the priesthood. They obtained enough strength to compel Jerome to turn against Oregon, although previously holding similar views. It was not learning then, nor spiritual knowledge that brought about the subsequent condemnation of Oregon, but rather bigotry and unspiritual ignorance. Oregon distinctly held as a fundamental idea, quote, the original and indestructible unity of God and all spiritual essences, unquote. This is precisely the doctrine of Isuvasya Upanishad, which says, when to a man who understands the self has become all things, what sorrow, what trouble can there be to him who once beheld that unity? Franz Kabbalah is referred to in these answers as saying that Oregon taught transmigration as a necessary doctrine for the explaining of the vicissitudes of life and the inequalities of birth. But the next quotation throws doubt again into the question, closing, however, thus. When the school comes into the world, it leaves the body which had been necessary to it in the mother's womb. It leaves, I repeat, the body which covered it and puts on another body fit for the life we lead on earth. But as we do not believe in metapsychosis, nor that the soul can ever be debased as to enter into the bodies of brute animals, there are several ways of looking at this. It may be charged that someone interpolated the italicized words, or that Oregon was referring to transmigrating back to animals, or lastly, that he and his learned friends had a theory about incarnation and reincarnation not clearly given. My opinion is that he wrote as above simply as to retrograde rebirth, and that he held the very identical doctrine as to reincarnation found in his unveiled and which caused it to be charged that HBB did not know or teach reincarnation in 1877. Of course, I cannot produce a quotation, but how could such a voluminous writer and deep thinker as Aragon hold to the doctrines of unity with God, of the final restoration of all souls to pristine purity, and of pre-existence, without also having a reincarnation doctrine? There are many indications and statements that there was an esoteric teaching on these subjects. Just as it is evident that Jesus had his private teaching for the select disciples. For that reason, Aragon might teach pre-existence, but hold back on the other. He says, according to Franck, 
that the question was not of metapsychosis, according to Plato, quote, but of an entirely different theory, which is of far and more elevated nature, unquote. It might have been this. The soul, considered as spirit and not animal soul, is pure, of the essence of God and desirous of immortality through a person. The person may fail and not be united to the soul. Another and another person is selected. Each one, if a failure in respect to the union with the self, passes into the sum of experience, but finally a personal birth is found wherein all former experiences are united and union gained. From henceforward, there is no more falling back, for immortality through a person has been attained. Prior to this great event, the soul existed, and hence the doctrine of pre-existence. For all of personal births, the soul was the God, the higher self of each, the luminous one, the Agawides existing from all time. It might be the cause of rebirths, but not itself be reincarnated, as it merely overshadowed each birth without being holy in the flesh. Such a doctrine, extremely mystical and providing for each a personal God, with a great possibility held out through reunion, could well be called by Oregon, quote, a different theory from metapsychosis and, quote, of more elevated character. When once more the modern Christian church admits its founders believed in preexistence and that Jesus did not condemn reincarnation, a long step will have been taken toward uprooting many intolerant and illogical doctrines now held. William Q. Judge, Path, 1894 Friends or Enemies in the Future The fundamental doctrines of theosophy are of no value unless they are applied to daily life. To the extent to which this application goes, they become living truths quite different from intellectual expressions of doctrine. The mere intellectual grasp may result in spiritual pride, while the living doctrine becomes an entity through the mystic power of the human soul. Many great minds have dwelt on this. St. Paul wrote, Though I speak the tongues of men and of angels and of not charity, I've become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it proliveth me nothing. The voice of the silence, expressing the views of the highest schools of occultism, asks us to step out of the sunlight into the shade so to make more room for others, and declares that those whom we help in this life will help us in the next one. Buttresses to these are the doctrines of karma and reincarnation. The first shows that we must reap what we sow, and the second that we come back in the company of those with whom we have lived and acted in other lives. St. Paul is in complete accord with all other occultists and his expressions above given must be viewed in the light theosophy throws on all similar writings. 
Contrasted with charity, which is love of our fellows, are all the possible virtues and acquirements. These are nothing if charity be absent. Why? Because they die with the death of the uncharitable person. Their value is not, and that being is reborn without friend and without capacity. This is of the highest importance to the earnest theosophist, who may be making the mistake of obtaining intellectual benefits, but remains uncharitable. The fact that we are now working in the theosophical movement means that we did so in other lives, must do so again, and still more important, that those who are now with us will be reincarnated in our company on our next rebirth. Shall those whom we now know, or whom we are destined to know before this life ends, be our friends or enemies, our aiders or obstructors in the coming life? And what will make them hostile or friendly to us then? Not what we shall say or do to or for them in the future life. For no man becomes your friend in a present life by reason of present acts alone. He was your friend, are you his, before in a previous life. Your present acts but revive the old friendship, renew the ancient obligation. Was he your enemy before? Will he now be even though you do him service now? For these tendencies last always more than three lives. They will be more and still more our aids if we increase the bond of friendship of today by charity. Their tendency to enmity will be one-third lessened in every life if we persist in kindness, in love, in charity now. And that charity is not a gift of money, but charitable thought for every weakness to every failure. Our friends and enemies, then, are those who are with us and to be with us in the present. If they are those who now seem amenical, we make a grave mistake and only put off the day of reconciliation three more lives if we allow ourselves today to be deficient in charity for them. We are annoyed and hindered by those who actively oppose, as well as others whose mere looks, temperament, or unconscious action fret and disturb us. Our code of justice to ourselves, often but petty personality, incites us to rebuke them, to criticize, to attack. It is a mistake for us to act so. Could we but glance ahead to the next life? We would see these for whom we now have but scant charity, crossing the plane of that life with ourselves and ever in our way, always hiding the light from us. But change our present attitude, and that new life to come would show these boars the partial enemies and obstructors helping us, aiding our every effort for karma may give them greater opportunities than ourselves and better capacity. Is any theosophist who reflects on this so foolish as to continue now if he has the power to alter himself, a course that will breed a crop of thorns for his next life's reaping? We should continue our charity and kindness to friends whom it is easy to wish to help. But for those we naturally dislike, who are our boars now, we ought to take special pains and carefully toward them cultivate a feeling of love and charity. This adds interest to our karmic investment. 
the opposite course as surely as sun rises and water runs downhill, strikes interest from the account and enters a heavy item on the wrong side of life's ledger. And especially should the whole theosophical organization act on the lines laid down by St. Paul and the voice of the silence. For karmic tendency is an unswerving law. It compels us to go in this movement of thought and doctrine. It will bring back to reincarnation all in it now. Sentiment cannot move the law one inch, and though that emotion might seek to rid us of the presence of men and women, we presently do not fancy or approve, and there are many such in our ranks for everyone. The law will place us again in company with friendly tendency increased or hostile feeling diminished just as we now create the one or prevent the other. It was the aim of the founders of the society to arouse tendency to future friendship. It ought to be the object of all our members. What will you have in the future life, enemies or friends? Euserbio Urban, Path, 1893 Respecting Reincarnation Objections frequently raised against reincarnation and that appear to those who make them to be strong, are some growing out of the emotional part of our nature. They say, quote, We do not wish to be someone else in another life. How can we recognize our friends and loved ones if they and we thus change our personality? The absorbing attachments we form here are such that happiness would seem impossible without those we love. End quote. It is useless to say in reply that, if reincarnation be the law, it can and will make no difference what we would like or dislike. So long as one is governed by his likes and dislikes, logical arguments will not dissipate objections. And if it's coldly asserted that the beloved objects of our affection pass a death forever beyond us, no relief is afforded to the mind, nor is a strictly accurate statement made. In fact, one of the miseries of conditioned existence is the apparent liability of forever losing those upon whom we place our hearts. So to meet this difficulty raised by ever-present death, the Christian churches have invented their heaven in which reunion is possible under a condition, the acceptance of the dogma of the Redeemer. None of their believers seem to consider that inasmuch as constantly many of those most closely bound to us by every tie do not ever and will never meet the prerequisite condition. Happiness in that heaven cannot be possible when we constantly are aware that those unbelievers are suffering in hell, for enough memory being left to permit us to recognize believing friends, we cannot forget the others. Greater than ever, then, that difficulty becomes. What are these loves must be asked? They are either A, a love for the mere physical body, or B, one for the soul within. Of course, in the first case, the body being disintegrated at death, it is not possible for us, nor need we wish, unless we are grossly materialistic, to see that in the other life. And personality belongs only to the body. Hence, if the soul that we do love inhabits another physical frame, it is the law, a part of the law of reincarnation, not often stated or dwelt on, 
that we will again, when incarnated, meet the same soul in the new tenement. We cannot, however, always recognize it. But that, the recognition of memory of those whom we knew before, is one of the very objects of our study and practice. Not only is this the law as found in ancient books, but it has been positively stated in the history of the Theosophical Society and a letter from an adept addressed not many years ago to some London theosophists. In it, he asked them if they imagined that they were together as incarnated beings for the first time, stated that they were not, and laid down the rule that the real affinities of the soul drew them together on earth. To be associated against our will with those who lay upon us the claim of mother, father, brother, son, or wife from a previous life would neither be just nor necessary. Those relations as such grew out of physical ties alone, and the souls that are alike, who really love each other, as well as those who harbor hate, are brought together in mortal bodies as now father and now son, or otherwise. So then, with the doctrine of David Chun, we have the answer. In that state we have with us, for all practical purposes, and to suit our desire, everyone whom we loved on earth. Upon being reincarnated, we are again with those souls we are naturally attracted to. By living up to the highest and best of our convictions, for humanity and not for self, we make it possible that we shall at last recognize in some earth life those persons whom we love, and to lose whom forever seems such a dreary and uninviting prospect. Path, August 1888 Reincarnation of Animals Very little has been said on the question whether or not the theory of reincarnation applies to animals in the same way as to man. Doubtless, if Brahman members well acquainted with Sanskrit works on the general subject were to publish their views, we would at least have a large mass of material for thought and find many clues to the matter in the Hindu theories and allegories. Even Hindu folklore would suggest much. Under all popular superstitions, a large element of truth can be found hidden away when the vulgar notion is examined in the light of the wisdom religion. A good instance of this on the material plane is to be found in the new treatment proposed for smallpox. The old superstition was that all patients with that disease must be treated and kept in darkness, but the practice was given up by modern doctors. Recently, however, Someone had the unusual flash and decided that perhaps the chemical rays of the sun had something to do with the matter and began to try red glass for all windows where smallpox patients were. Success was reported, the theory being that the disease was one where the chemical rays injured the skin and health just as they do in ordinary sunburn. Here we see, if the new plan be found right, that an old superstition was based on a law of nature. In the same way, the folklore of such an ancient people as the Hindu deserves scrutiny with the object of discovering the buried truth. If they are possessed of such notions regarding the fate of animals, careful analysis might give valuable suggestion. Looking at the question in the light of the theosophical theories, we see that a wide distinction exists between man and animals. 
man reincarnates as man because he has got to the top of the present scale of evolution. He cannot go back, for Manas is too much developed. He has a Devachan because he is a conscious thinker. Animals cannot have Manas so much developed, and so cannot be self-conscious in the sense that man is. Besides all this, the animal kingdom, being lower, has the impulse still to rise to higher forms. But here we have the distinct statement by the adepts through HPB that while possibly animals may rise higher in their own kingdom, they cannot in this evolution rise to the human stage, as we have reached the middle or turning point on the fourth round. On this point HPB has, in the second volume of The Secret Doctrine, 1st edition, page 196, a footnote as follows. In calling animals soulless, it is not depriving the beast from the humblest of the highest species, of a soul, but only of a conscious surviving ego soul, for example, that principle which survives after a man and reincarnates in a like man. The animal has an astral body that survives the physical form for a short period, but its animal monad does not reincarnate in the same, but in a higher species, and has no devachan, of course. It has the seeds of all human principles in itself, but they are latent. Here the distinction above averted to is made. It is due to the ego soul, that is, to manas with booty and atma. Those principles being latent in the animal, and the door to the human kingdom being closed, they may rise higher to species, but not to the man stage. Of course, also, it is not meant that no dog or other animal ever reincarnates as a dog, but that the monad has tendency to rise to a higher species, whatever that be, whenever it has passed beyond the necessity for further experience as a dog. Under the position, the author assumes it would be natural to suppose that the astral form of the animal did not last long, as she says. And hence the astral appearances or apparitions of animals were not common. Such is the fact. I have heard of a few, but very few cases where a favorite animal made an apparitional appearance after death. But even the prolific field of spiritualism has not many instances of the kind. And those who have learned about the astral world know that human beings assume in that world the form of the animal or other things which they in character most resemble and that this sort of apparition is not confined to the dead, but is more common among the living. It is by such signs that clairvoyants know the very life and thought of a person before them, who is under the operation of this law, that Swedenborg saw so many curious things in his time. The objection based on the immense number of animals both alive and dead, as calling for supply of monads in that stage, can be met in this way. While it is stated that no more animal monads can enter on the man stage, it is not said nor inferred that the incoming supply of monads for the animal kingdom has stopped. They may still be coming in from other worlds for evolution among the animals of this globe. There is nothing impossible in it, and it will supply the answer to the question, where do new animal monads come from? supposing that all the present ones have exhausted the whole number of higher species possible here. 
it is quite possible also that the animal monads may be carried on to other members of the earth chain in advance of man for the purpose of necessary development, and this would lessen the number of their appearances here. For what keeps man here so long is that the power of his thought is so great as to make a devachan for all lasting some fifteen centuries, with exceptions, and for a number who desire heaven, a devachan of enormous length. The animals, however, may be devoid of developed manas, have no devachan, and must be forced onwards to the next planet in the chain. This would be consistent and useful, as it gives them a chance for development in readiness for the time when the monads of that kingdom shall begin to rise to a new human kingdom. They will have lost nothing, but on the contrary, will be the gainers. William Brahan, Path, April 1894 Transmigration of Souls Is there any foundation for the doctrine of transmigration of souls, which was once believed in and is now held by some classes of Hindus, is a question sent to the path. From a careful examination of the Vedas and the Upanishads, it will be found that the ancient Hindus did not believe in this doctrine, but held, as so many theosophists do, that once a man, always a man, but of course there is the exception of the case where men live bad lives persistently for ages. But it also seems very clear that the later Brahmins, for the purpose of having a priestly hold on the people for other purposes, taught them the doctrine that they and their parents might go after death into the bodies of animals. But I doubt if the theory is held to such an extent as to make it a national doctrine. Some missionaries and travelers have hastily concluded that it is the belief because they saw the Hindu and the Jain alike acting very carefully as to animals and insects, avoiding them in the path, carefully brushing insects out of the way at a great loss of time, so as not to step on them. This, said the missionary, is because they think that in these forms their dead friends or relatives may be living. The real reason for such care is that they think they have no right to destroy life, which is not in their power to restore. While I have some views on the subject of transmigration of a certain sort that I am not now disposed to disclose, I may be allowed to give others on the question, how might such an idea arise out of the true doctrine? First, what is the fate of the astral body, and in what way and how much does that affect the next generation of the man? Second, what influence has man on the atoms, millions in number, which from year to year enter the composition of his body? And how far is he, the soul, responsible for those effects and answerable for them in a subsequent life of joy or sorrow or opportunity or obscurity? These are important questions. The student of the theosophic scheme admits that after death, the astral soul either dies and dissipates at once or remains wandering for a space in Kamaloka. If the man was spiritual or what is sometimes called very good, then his astral soul dissipates soon. If he was wicked and material, then the astral part of him, being too gross to easily disintegrate, is condemned, as it were, to flit about in Kamaloka, manifesting itself in spiritualistic seance rooms as the spirit of some deceased one, 
and doing damage to the mental furniture of mortals while it suffers other pains itself. Seers of modern times have declared that such Edelanzer spooks assume the appearance of beasts or reptiles according to their dominant characteristics. The ancients sometimes taught that these gross astral forms, having a natural affinity for the lower types, such as the animal kingdom, gravitated gradually in that direction and were at last absorbed in the astral plane of animals, for which they furnished the sidereal particles needed by them as well as by man. This is in no sense meant that the man himself went into the animal, for before this result had eventuated, the ego might have already re-entered life, with a new physical and astral body. The common people, however, could not make these distinctions, so very easily held the doctrine as meaning that the man became an animal. After a time, the priests and seers took up this form of the tenant and taught it outright. It can be found in the desatar, which is said that tigers and other ferocious animals are incarnations of wicked men and so on. But it must be true that each man is responsible and accountable for the fate of his astral body left behind at death since the fate results directly from the man's own acts and life. Considering the question of atoms on their march along the path of evolution, another cause for a belief wrongly held in transmigration into lower forms can be found. The initiates could teach and thoroughly understand how it is that each ego is responsible for the use he makes of the atoms in space and how each may and does imprint a definite character and direction upon all the atoms used throughout life. But the uninitiated just as easily would misinterpret this also and think it referred to transmigration. Each man has a duty not only to himself, but also to the atoms in use. He is the great, the highest educator of them, being each instant in possession of some, and likewise ever throwing them off, he should so live that they gain a fresh impulse to the higher life of man as compared with the brute. This impress and impulse given by us either confer an affinity for human bodies and brains, or for that which corresponding to brutal lives and base passions belongs to the lower kingdoms. So the teachers inculated this and said, if the disciple lived a wicked life, his atoms would be precipitated down instead of up in this relative scale. If he was dull and inattentive, the atoms similarly impressed traveled into sticks and stones. In each case, they to some extent represented the man, just as our surroundings, furniture, and clothing generally represent us who collect and use them. So from both these true tenets, the people might at last come to believe in transmigration as being a convenient and easy way of formulating the problem and of indicating a rule of conduct. Haji, Path, March 1891 The Persian Student's Doctrine Before the flashing diamond and the mysterious mountain behind the temple began to lose its brilliance, Many foreigners visited the island. Among them were students from Persia. Coming that great distance, they sought more than knowledge. As in their own land, the truth was already beginning to be forgotten. 
It was hidden under the thick crust of fanciful interpretations of the sayings of their sages, which were fast turning into superstitious notions. And these young men thought that in the island, the fame of which had spread over land and sea, they would find learning and wisdom and the way to power. But yet while in such a frame of mind, they regarded some things as settled even for sages. What they said did not have much influence on me until they began to quote some of the old writings from the prophets of their country, attempting to prove that men, though godlike and immortal, transmigrated sometimes backwards into beasts and birds and insects. As some old Buddhist monks had years before given out the same idea with hints of mystery underneath, the sayings of these visitors began to trouble me. They quoted these verses from the prophet, the great Abad. Those who, in the season of prosperity, experience pain and grief, suffer them on account of their words or deeds in a former body, for which the most just now punisheth them. Whosoever is an evil doer, on him he first inflicteth pain under the human form. For sickness, the suffering of children while in their mother's womb, and after they are out of it, and suicide, and being hurt by ravenous animals, and death, and being subjected to want from birth till death, are all retributions for past actions, and in like manner as to goodness. The lion, the tiger, the leopard, the panther, with all ravenous animals, whether birds or quadrupeds or creeping things, have once possessed authority, and everyone whom they kill hath been under their aider or better, who did evil by supporting or assisting, or by the orders of that exalted class, and having given pain to harmless animals, are now punished by their own masters. The horse submits to be ridden on, the ox, the camel, the mule, and the ass bear burdens. And these in a former life were men who impose burdens on others unjustly. Such persons are foolish and evil doers, being enclosed in the body vegetables, meet with the regard of their stupidity and misdeeds. And such as possess illaudable knowledge and do evil are enclosed in the body of minerals until their sins be purified after which they are delivered from this suffering and are once more united to a human body, and according as they act in it, they may meet again with retribution. These young men made such good arguments of these texts and dwelt so strongly upon the great attainments of Abad, who was beyond doubt a prophet of insight, that doubts arose in my mind. While the verses did not deny the old doctrine of man's reincarnation, they added a new view to the matter that had never suggested itself to me before. The students pointed out that there was a very wise and consistent doctrine wherein it was declared that murderers, tyrants, and such men would be condemned to inhabit the bodies of such murderous beasts as lions and tigers. They made out a strong case on other verses also, showing those weak but vicious men who had aided and abetted the stronger and more violent murderers, should be condemned to precipitation out of the human cycle into the bodies of defenseless animals, in company with ferocious beasts, by the strength and ferocity of which they would at last be destroyed themselves. And thus said these visitors, 
They proceeded in each other's company, lower and lower in the scale of the organized life, reaching at last those kingdoms of nature, like the mineral, where differentiation in the direction of man is not yet visible. And from there the condemned beings would be ground out into the great mass and smile at the very bottom of nature's ladder. Not wishing to admit or accept these doctrines from strangers, I engaged in many arguments with them on the matter, until at last they left the island to continue their pilgrimage. So one day, being troubled in the mind about these sayings of Abad, which indeed I heard from the students were accepted in many countries and given by several other prophets, I sought out the old man who had so often before had solved problems for me. He was a man of sorrow, for although possessor of power and able to open up the inner planes of nature, able to give the questioner the inner sight for a time so that one could see for himself the real truth of material things, something ever went with him that spoke of sorrow he could not tell about. Perhaps he was suffering for a fault of magnitude of which no one knew but himself. Perhaps the final truths eluded him. Or maybe he had a material belief at bottom, but he was always kind and ever ready to give me the help I needed, provided I had tried myself in every way and failed to obtain it. Brother, I said, do we go into animals when we die? Who said that we do, was his answer. It was declared by the old prophet Abad of the worshippers of the fire that we thus fall down from our high estate gained with pain and difficulty. Do you believe it? Have you reasoned it out or accepted the doctrine? No, I said, I have not accepted it, much as they may reason on it. There are defects in my replies, and there seems to be consistency in the doctrine that the ferocious may go into the ferocious and vicious into wild animals, the one destroying the other and man, the hunter killing the ferocious. Can you solve it? Turning on me the deep and searching gaze he used for those who asked when he would determine if curiosity alone moved them. He said, I will show you the facts and the corrupted doctrine together on the night of the next full moon. Patiently I waited for the moon to grow, wondering, supposing that the moon must be connected with the question, because we were said to have come by the way of the moon like a flock of birds who migrated north or south according to their nature. At last the day came, and I went to the old man. He was ready. Turning from the room, he took me to a small cave near the foot of the diamond mountain. The light in the diamond seemed to illuminate the sky as we paused at the entrance. We went in by the short passage in front, and here, where I had never been before, soft footfalls and invisible beings seemed to echo as if they were retreating before us, and half-heard whispers floated by us into the night. But I had no fear. Those footfalls, though strange, had no malice, and such faint and melodious whisperings aroused no alarm. We went to the side of the cave so that we looked at the other side. The passage had a sharp turn near the inner entrance, and no light fell around us. Thus we waited in silence for some time. Look quietly toward the opposite wall, said the old man, and waver not in thought. 
fixing an unstrained gaze in the direction of the other side. It soon seemed to quiver, and then an even vibration began across it until it looked like a tumbling mass of clouds. This soon settled into a gray flat surface like a painter's canvas that was still as the clear sky and seemingly transparent. It gave us light and made no reflection. Think of your question, of your doubts, and of the young students who have raised them. Think not of Abad, for he is but a name, whispered my guide. Then as I revolved the question, a cloud rose on the surface before me. It moved. It grew into shapes that were dim at first. They soon became those of human beings. They were the living pictures of my student friends. They were conversing, and I too was there, but less plain as they. But instead of an atmosphere being around them, they were surrounded with ether, and streams of ether full of what I took to be corporeal atoms continually rushed from one to the other. After I had accustomed my sight to this, the old man directed me to look at one of the students in particular. From him the stream of ether loaded with atoms, very dark in places and red in others, did not always run into his fellows, but seemed to be absorbed everywhere. Then when I had fixed this in my mind, all the other students faded from the space, and their place taken by some ferocious beast that prowled around the remaining student, though still appearing to be a long distance from him. And then I saw that the stream of atoms from him was absorbed by those dreadful beasts at the time that a mask fell off, as it were, from his face showing me his real ferocious, murderous mind. He killed a man on the way, in secret. He is a murderer at heart, said my guide. This is the truth that Abad meant to tell. Those atoms fly from us at every instant. They seek their appropriate center, that which is similar to the character of him who evolves them. We absorb from our fellows whatever is like unto us. It is thus that man reincarnates in the lower kingdoms. He is the lord of nature, the key, the focus, the highest concentrator of nature's laboratory. And the atoms he condemns to fall thus to beasts will return to him in some future life for his detriment or his sorrow. But he as a mortal man cannot fall. That which falls is the lower, the personal, the atomic. He is the brother and teacher of all below him. See that you do not hinder and delay all nature by your failure in virtue. Then the ugly picture faded out, and a holy man, named in the air in gold, Abad, took his place. From him the stream of atoms, full of his virtue, his hopes, aspirations, and the impressions of his knowledge and power, flowed out to other sages, to disciples, to the good in every land. They fell upon the unjust and the ferocious, and then thoughts of virtue, of peace, of harmony, grew up where those streams flowed. The picture faded, the cloudy scream vibrated and rolled away. We were again in the lonely cave. Faint footfalls echoed around the walls, and soft whispers as of peace and hope trembled through the air. Brian Kinnevin, Path, October 1892 That's it for the articles on reincarnation. 
there are a few more PATH articles on the subject from the Reincarnation Pamphlet. Look for that and the other theosophical books published by the Theosophy Company, such as The Secret Doctrine, Isis Unveiled, The Ocean, and also The Key to Theosophy, a very good primer on theosophy in a question-and-answer format. Thank you for your most valued time and for your attention today. I hope that what's been said can be integrated into your life to inspire kindness, patience, and gratitude for all you experience in this life. After all, when successful, any spiritual or religious teaching should ultimately assist us in navigating our lives, inspire us, and bring us a sense of understanding, peace, and wholeness. Perhaps when amidst the circumstances, when another is being truly unfair or unkind, now, instead of being drawn in and embroiled oneself, maybe you can be compassionate because you're aware they will suffer in another life to make up for the misdeeds. The subjects we've covered so far in this series, karma and reincarnation, though interesting, can feel a bit pious so that I can show you just how vast and diverse the study of theosophy is, I'll be sure to choose a subject for Episode 3 whose focus is not particularly religious in nature. I think you'll be surprised that theosophy covers so much ground and seemingly unrelated topics. In addition, there's been rapidly growing participation in the free Zoom classes now available several times a week, in which students from across the globe simultaneously participate. It's a very exciting and vibrant way to study theosophy. Sections of the main texts are read aloud, and everyone is free to discuss their ideas on the subject or to just listen if they prefer. Find the schedule at universaltheosophy.com. On the far right menu option, Community, Choose Classes by UT from the drop-down menu. It's been my pleasure to be your host, Marlon Braccia, for the Musings on Theosophy podcast. It's been generously supported by the Theosophy Company, who publishes books and hosts the United Lodge of Theosophists website at ult-la.org. I wish all the best to you, and I hope to meet you here again for Episode 3. With the spirit of a worldwide brotherhood, let me say adios, arrivederci, and goodbye for now.